Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, and I am in Soggy, New Jersey, not too far away to the south in Washington, D.C., We have Ed Luce of the Financial Times, and for the first time on Deep State Radio, we have Lauren DeYoung-Shulman of the Bombshell Podcast, one of the podcasts we really sort of admire from, um, well, not so far afar, but we admire it, and also uh, CNAS. Yay, Lauren! Yay! I think you're in England, Corey. Where where are you? I am in beautiful beaver creek colorado for the clement center's summer workshop you are you move around more than yasser Arafat is to move. <laughs> and for the same reason david i'm complicating targeting for my enemies you have no enemies there are no <laughs> enemies tell me there's an enemy out there for you Corey. <laughs> she's just I hiding her hordes of admirers <laughs> that that's more plausible. Right. Everywhere I go, people come up to me and they say, "If I could only spend one minute in a room." I am not sure Star- I want to hear the end of this sentence, David. <laughs> they say, "If I could only spend one minute in a room with Corey Shockey's laugh." Ah, that makes me happy. Thank you. <laughs> no, it's absolutely true. So, guys, there's always a lot of news, and I just sort of like to use it to lead off in our discussions. Um, uh, so hopefully we can, um, you know, enlighten nerd nation out there a little bit about what's going on and why. Now, shortly before we taped this particular broadcast, um, we had, uh, a press conference for the White House in which the White House announced that they want to pull security clearances from people like John Brennan and General Mike Hayden and Susan Rice, and James Comey, because A, they are um, uh, uh, monetizing their um, uh, security clearances, uh, and B, they have the temerity to actually suggest, inappropriately according to the White House, that the president may actually have been influenced by the Russians. Now, that's you know, I'm shocked to hear there's gambling in this establishment. Yeah, pretty low bar. Lauren, as a national security professional, how many people in the intelligence community do you think will not end up with security clearances if we eliminate those who think the president might have been influenced by the Russians? 
Probably. I mean, if you had to do a survey, which would mean that you actually got access to all the people's security clearances, which is nearly, nearly impossible. But if you had to do a survey, OPM basically link. all of them. That's true. The Chinese could probably do the survey for us <laughs> and find out that everyone agreed or nearly everyone agreed with the, these assessments that our intelligence community has published. But honestly, I'm kind of surprised it took the president's, uh, Trump, President Trump this long to get to this kind of weapon of taking away security clearances from current and former officials. It's a great tactic for any kind of national security evildoer. Why did it take him so long? That's true. You know, maybe we should be switching our whole analysis of Trump, not to all the damage he's doing, but how bad he is as an evil villain. I mean, he hasn't really, you know, been as successful as he might have been um, in undermining our entire national security system and the international system. I suspect there are things he could have done that he hasn't done. You know, I'm, you know, Corey. <laughs> yes, I agree. The president is a, is a, I saw a great tweet a couple of weeks ago. Somebody saying that, you know, president, they'd be a lot more afraid of President Trump if he weren't a clown in a clown car holding a sign, I am a Manchurian candidate, screaming out the windows as he drives around. Um, and you're right. There are lots of actual scary things the president hasn't yet done, but I don't think that negates the real corrosion of our free society that the things the president is doing, suggesting that former government officials be stripped of their ability to contribute to future policies, because after all, not that many people have been national security advisor, and you might want those people to remain well-informed. Uh, to help you solve hard problems. But that's clearly not the White House's mindset. They are, you know, this is Richard Nixon politicizing the IRS in the national security realm, and we ought all to seriously stand against it. Yeah. Did I hear a sharp intake of breath there from Lauren? I, you did. You did. But I think my favorite part of this press conference was, you know, the audacity of these former national security officials agreeing with the intelligence community. Yeah. The, Trump, the Trump administration, they're more than happy to let it slide if you've done sketchy deals with China or if you have uh, committed domestic abuse against your girlfriend. Those are all apparently totally fine things to do while holding a security clearance. But agreeing <laughs> with the intelligence community is a bridge too far. That's the best take. Well done, Lauren. Uh, yeah, well, it is a bridge too far. Now, on this whole issue of becoming a better evil villain, um, Ed, you know, one thing that we haven't seen is the president actually declare a war on another country with a midnight tweet. Um, but we've come closer to that the past few hours. Um, right. uh, and, and an all caps tweet at that. I, I suppose that makes it all the more serious now. It does, and all the more predictable, because um, uh, when Trump feels besieged, he tends to lash out. And the obvious, you know, North Korea is off the table for a while because the pretense is being kept up that it's going to fully denuclearize. Um, uh, you know, obviously, Russia is never going to be on the table because this is President Trump. So if you need a wag the dog scenario, Iran is the obvious um, one. 
Um, uh, there's something else, I think, and perhaps Corey re retweeted it in terms of whether Trump, you know, is a clever villain or a really uh, comically inept one. And uh, it was a perfect line, which was, he's not Putin's useful idiot. He's just an idiot. Um, and I think, uh, you know, you can predict um, how idiots think. And the, the Iran sort of escalation with um, uppercase included um, in, in response to Rouhani's, um, uh, President Rouhani's comments uh, over the weekend was very predictable. Uh, this, this is uh, um, uh, also dangerously um, predictable. This, this situation, you know, this is where Bolton is going to make up for the fact that he's had to sit there um, and take uh, a North Korea um, uh, dovish, uh, well, help lead a North Korea dovish initiative, uh, lead the Putin one, all of which go against the grain of uh, his entire career. But Iran, finally, he can go with the grain of what he believes. So this is a dangerous situation because Trump, Trump will not have uh, as many sort of checks um, as he's had with other initiatives. Yeah, so Lauren, that gives us kind of the image of John Bolton as kind of the dim-witted mobster sidekick who's saying, I, I got to hit somebody, boss. You know, you're not letting me hit anybody else. C can I hit these guys, boss? I mean, finally, he's getting a war that he could, he could, he could spin up. Do you think it's a serious threat or do you think Trump was, you know, having indigestion last night or worried about the Manafort trial? How do you frame this threat? We've been waiting for some kind of aggression against Iran to take place, if not to actually take place, at least the threat of it to take place over the last year and a half. So frankly, it's kind of surprised to me that it's taken this long for all caps midnight tweets from the president. Given his national security cabinet between you know, Secretary Pompeo, Secretary Mattis, and others who were quite skeptical of Iran, he's been kind of breathing in this anti-Iranian, you know, pro-Iranian aggression or I guess pro-anti-Iran aggression since he was sworn in. So I, I kind of wonder if Pompeo, to your point, not so not Pompeo, I wonder if Bolton has just gotten completely frustrated and bored by being a somewhat ineffectual national security advisor and has taken advantage of Trump's frustration with North Korea to plant this idea in his head of like, well, you know what's a really good sell boss and everyone on your National Security Council is going to love it, is let's just start kind of messing with Iran a little bit. Maybe not actually go to war, maybe not actually do too much in the Persian Gulf, but let's just start maybe putting on a sideshow that takes away notice from th how things are failing in North Korea and how you totally you know, screwed things up with Putin. Move over to this side, and you might get a, some positive press out of it. Well, that's, you know, that brings you know, us to sort of the the, the wave of hot takes that followed this, Corey. And I was watching as this tweet happened and people were sort of freaking out in the middle of the night. And then, but there was this kind of big wave of people going, well, he's just distracting from the Manafort trial or he's distracting from Russia. And, you know, this is just what he did with North Korea mm -hmm. and he's replicating North Korea. But it seems to me that Iran is very different from North Korea and a much more dangerous situation, actually, because he actually might go to war with him, them, and the odds of doing that with North Korea were much lower. And I'm just wondering, what's your take? My sense is that the president, that 
I think it's unlikely that the president is actually going to go to war on the Korean Peninsula or against Iraq. Because if you look at the pattern, he always supports a war when it's about to start in order to look tough. But, but you know, jump ship as soon as 72 hours of cruise missiles haven't solved a long-term complicated problem. So I don't actually think he has the stomach for for fighting wars. I think President Trump's basically a chicken hawk. And but that is not unproblematic because what I think I see happening is the president with all of this antagonistic aggressive bluster is first of all um, making the United States look like a lathering at the corner of its mouth rabid dog rather than the judicious uh, giver and enforcer of rules of the liberal international order. So that's costly. It's changing how other people think about the United States. But second of all, to make those kinds of threats with no policies that support them um, actually degrades the power of American threats, which is something that people complained about um, endlessly when President Obama didn't enforce the red line in Syria. And I feel like President Trump's doing the same thing, but in his own scattershot, erratic, no follow-up policy kind of way. You know, David and Corey, there's a couple of things that are really interesting for context here. And one being that a lot of the senior Middle East officials on the National Security Council have either departed recently or are departing quite soon, including those who might have assumed would be in line with a let's go get Iran kind of strategy. So that's one. And the second being, I mean, for all the, the expectation of that as we pulled out of the JCPOA, as we expected to have a harder line on Iran, the, tr the Trump Middle East strategy basically kind of sucks if that's their plan. They have no strategy in Syria. They're not terribly good at figuring out what to do vis-a-vis -vis Hezbollah and other uh, Iranian proxies in the region. They are kind of supporting some actions in, in Yemen and elsewhere, but not really to the point where it's actually making any difference. And they're being schizophrenic and, um, I guess, uh, secretive enough about their overall plans in the Middle East that the Iranians probably have no real idea what to expect other than the president's tweets. So if there is a strategy, which is highly doubtful, that it makes, that nobody really knows it. And certainly it's only in the president's head. Well, it's also possibly in Bibi Netanyahu's head. Well, that, that's all. <laughs> right. right. I mean, he probably thought this was like a love letter from, from Trump. Um, uh, now, Ed, one of the things that seems to be evolving in the world that we might not have expected is that high-level diplomacy is taking place with deft feints and parries in the Twitterverse. And so the president does his all-caps tweet, and the Iranian foreign minister, Javad Zarif, comes back with a tweet that is partially in caps, saying, color us unimpressed, and then says, the world heard even harsher bluster a few months ago, and Iranians have heard them, albeit more civilized ones, for 40 years. We've been around for millennia and seen fall of empires, including our own, which lasted more than the life of some countries. And then back in big caps, be cautious. And, and it's like, 
have we really come to the point that the insane president of the United States is getting snarky <laughs> tweets back from the foreign minister of Iran, and that's how we're conducting global affairs? Well, it's not just uh, Javed Zarif. I mean, uh, Donald Tusk of the European Union has got into quite a, a clever subtweeting uh, mode, although maybe too clever by half, um, with with Trump. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a little bit worried about the direction in which this is pushing Iranian politics. And it wasn't long ago that we had a moderate Rouhani re-elected, um, partly on the back of the um, beginnings of economic um, benefits from the 2015 um, JCPOA. Um, and so the direction was going in the way the Obama administration and, and others across the foreign policy establishment rightly said it would go, which is this will embolden uh, pro-business, moderate forces within Iran, normalizing forces within Iran, and help, um, um, help make Iran progressively over time a better interlocutor. Now, as you've pointed out, you know, there were plenty of people who hated the Iran deal from day one, not least Bibi Netanyahu, who's uh, been uh, undermining it in a sort of unprecedented way, uh, including speaking um, against Obama's deal to the joint houses of Congress, uh, a complete break with precedent. He's now, uh, he's now um, getting his way. And um, I don't know whether Trump understands what if, if Lauren's correct, and that's the kind of advice Bolton's been giving him, um, that you can just do this, amp this up. Um, you know, we don't actually need to start a real shooting war anytime soon. If, if that's, you know, that's where he's getting advice from. Clearly, he's getting that kind of advice from Netanyahu and questionable um, cherry-picked intelligence, no doubt, as well. Then maybe Corey's right that, that this will just sort of remain a Twitter, all caps versus, you know, partial caps uh, sort of a diplomatic um, crossfire, but it makes the politics um, of any, any in another context, a relatively minor sort of punitive or interdiction action in the Gulf of Iranian vessels or around Yemen, a lot more high, highly strung, a lot more um, uh, a lot more prone to rapid escalation and misunderstanding. So it just does make the whole situation uh, a lot more dangerous. Well, let's let's take a little bit of a break here, because although the deep state radio nerds out there are extremely sophisticated people, um, it's, 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 it's who's, la who's laughing at that? Me. They're <laughs> <laughs> um, very sophisticated, but we want to put things in some context. Lauren. And let How? me rush to say I'm not laughing at deep state nerds. I'm laughing with eager anticipation at that wind up, David. Oh, I see. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, thank you. But, but, but uh, Lauren, I was just thinking perhaps it'd be helpful to put things in context. So the president pulled out of, uh, you referred to as JCPOA, our colleague who's not on this episode, Rosa Brooks, insists we call it the JICPOA. Um, oh, come on. The JICPOA, no, that's the worst acronym on the planet. She loves that. She loves it. And we, we you know, we give her little little bits and pieces every once in a while. Um, and that's one of them. But in any event, he pulled out of that. How's that going? Well, as best we can tell, um, he pulled out of that 
without a lot of thought as to what do I do next, um, whether that be the, the reimposition of sanctions uh, with it unilaterally or with any other kind of allies. I think there were a lot of assumptions made about the willingness of non-European powers to go along with us and re the reimposition of sanctions, as were well, their assumptions about um, how European companies might react to sanctions that we placed on them for doing business with Iran. And I don't think when anyone was in the room, when they were coming up with the, fact, the, the proposal to pull out of the Iran deal, that they thought that we would be going into a apparently a major trade war with anyone who raises their hand, seriously complicating any kind of real message that we want to send, either message that we want to send or, um, you know, political benefit that we might have achieved in some way. So I, I, while I, you know, do have great respect for those at Treasury and State who come up with the sanction strategies that we've done in the past, I would dare say that they have no idea what the F they're doing right now and would love some guidance on what is the direction that we're supposed to be going, particularly given all the mixed messages that we have with our partners in Europe, with China, with India, and, um, with Russia, and many others on this front. What, what did that F stand for? Um, <laughs> fancy. <laughs> so just checking. Do you guys, on, on, on Bombshell, do you guys use bad words? So we have a policy of we use, uh, we can use a couple of them. We can use damn and we can use shit. Uh, but we don't use the worst of worst words because some people's high school and middle school age daughters listen to the show. Wow. And we don't want to be accused of corrupting it, being corrupting influences, even though we clearly are corrupting influences. But well, how, old, how old are these high school, middle aged, middle school aged daughters? How old are they? I don't know, yeah. probably four, 13, 14. I mean, they have clearly heard the words before. It's more that they listen to it with their parents. And, you know, you don't want to, like, listen to foul language with your parents. Yeah. So they're, they're all going around saying damn the whole time now. Oh, exactly. Yes, that's what they've learned from us uh, on top of drinking excessively and thinking that uh, civil military relations is the most important part of uh, foreign policy. The drinking's fine. By the way, Corey Shockey believes that civil military relations is the more, most important part of life. It is. <laughs> it's a great analogy for everything. I'm, am I overstating it, Corey? <laughs> well, perhaps only slightly, but only because it would crowd out Grover Cleveland's administration and the study thereof. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, well, that's, that's very, very true. Not to mention... Grover Cleveland Alexander, Corey. <laughs> yes, uh, you're exactly right, David. Let us twirl through the 19th century for our listeners, because those great deep state, deep state radio nerds actually enjoy it. Yeah, well, exactly. Who, who, who doesn't? You know, I going back to your point though on this Iran thing, I, I'm afraid I'm not quite as as optimistic as the perennial holder of the TR of optimism is because I, I've thought from the beginning that the place Trump was most likely to go to war was Iran. And that in part that's because um, unlike, say, North Korea, where it was in no one's interest to go to war in North Korea or in Peninsula, in the case of Iran, um, the not only might the U.S. see some benefit to it, if only as a distraction, but the Israelis would like to see us. 
Some of the Gulf states would like to see it. There are a number of people who think a war with Iran um, is not only um, not a bad idea, they think it's a good idea, including, by the way, I saw quoted um, Ari Fleischer of a late lamented administration um, that, that you may recall, um, who said, no, it's a good idea to destabilize Iran now. That will help us achieve our goals. Yeah. Uh, so a couple of reactions to that. The first is that um, it I I just don't think the president, a president who is gnashing his teeth and so unhappy about our commitments of forces in much more predictable, safe circumstances in Afghanistan and in Iraq and Syria fighting ISIS. President's desperate to get rid of those two obligations. So I just don't see him being willing to sign up for a the magnitude of war it would take to actually attack Iran, especially since nobody's going to help us except maybe the Israelis and the Saudis, uh, because the president has alienated all of our uh, all of our allies by withdrawing from the JPCOA, JCPOA. I never get that right. Um, anyway, that's why Rosa says JCPOA. <laughs> Um, so, so that's one thing I, I just don't, I can't see this president having the attention span to want to develop a strategy for the war, to think about the six months of flowing forces to the read. I just don't see him doing it. So I, I desperately hope that that sneaking suspicion unscientifically arrived at, um, is true. But it might not be. The second thing is everybody should go read the the thread that Rita Konev from the Fletcher School has up on in response to Ari Fleischer's ridiculousness, which which describes all of the ways that that trying to overthrow the regime in Iran or attacking Iran in the hope that political instability and regime transition will be the result. There are so many ways this goes bad. And the main reason I think the president won't do it is because I have a really hard time seeing the people who are the president's supporters thinking that this somehow advances their interests. This is another war in the Middle East. They didn't want a part of the other wars in the Middle East. <coughs> so I don't see why they would be all gang gung-ho about this one. So this brings us to another question, Ed, which is a lot of people out there are like, well, this is a distraction. And, you know, one of the things that I, I guess I find a little annoying sometimes I, um, and, a, and a distraction from my usually sunny disposition, when I'm like reading Twitter or talking to people, they're like, well, you see, this is Trump being super clever because he's distracting from Russiagate with the Iran thing, or he's deflecting from the Iran thing with the pulling away the security clearances thing. And this way, no one will remember the Russia thing. And I'm like, wait a minute, there's the Mueller investigation. There is the, the uh, simultaneous investigation with uh, uh, the, the Maria Butina, the Russian spy. Uh, God knows how many state investigations are going on. Uh, there, you know, the, the 
the you know the Senate Intelligence Committee. Nobody's going to forget the Russia thing. I mean, Trump may think it's out of the news cycle, but but this is kind of BS analysis, isn't it? It is. I mean, if you think of, um, um, I, I don't know, you think of um, great writers, journalists of uh, the pre-Twitter age, um, they, they have it a lot better because, you know, you can summarize all their writings and presumably you can't subpoena their emails, um, even their private letters. And you've, you've got uh, a more considered body of work there. Um, for those of us foolish enough to react, you know, um, with our reptilian brains on this social medium, um, I dread to think, you know, what, you know, some PhD analysis of um, the body of our work would look like if that's what we're going to be evaluated by. So people, you know, I forgive because I've been guilty of instant reactions on Twitter that um, look all knowing and end up being complete bullshit and have tried to curb that um, instinct. Um, but uh, Twitter brings it out. And yes, the, the idea that Trump, um, I know your question was really about, um, you know, whether Trump is tactically brilliant or not. I know, but you've taken this uh, personally. I obviously. <laughs> oh, no, no, I didn't think you were directing. I didn't think you were subtweeting me with your question. No. I, I, honestly, I, I don't want to speak. I thought he was subtweeting from the point where he started with his sunny personality um, yeah <laughs> thank you thank you guys for your support i i um i did not it did not feel that was a subtweet at me although this this is the last deep state show i'll ever appear on um no, no, no. Uh, you're not that lucky we're the deep state we will find you wherever you are you'll find me and i will willingly i will willingly give myself up um but the um you know, I just just as we've started this show, Michael Cohen, uh, Trump's uh, former personal lawyer, has you know waived all attorney-client privilege. New York Times breaking story: twelve recording on the recordings and all other communications with Trump. Twelve recordings of conversations between him and Trump. So no, no amount. Wow. Like, um, supposed, um, you, you know, um, d diversionary tactics, however spectacular um, Trump can think of, even in Iran war. Um, is going to is going to stop the judicial process from working. You know, David. Sometimes I wonder if Trump even really remembers what he says on Twitter when he makes these you know crazy pronouncements or has all caps tweets in the middle of the night or the early morning. If you know, twelve hours later, if nobody said anything, would he even have recollection of it? And with the danger of that being that, of course, the Department of Defense and his National Security Council and all of us are reading them. And then we constantly hound them for, what did you mean by that? And then, of course, DOD thinks, well, we're going to be asked to be to do something. So we should start planning and coming up with options to bring forward. So at, things start spinning, even if the president was just, frankly, having a really, really, really bad morning bell movement of some kind. And instead, huh. we we may have a war, what, what, what could have just been a really bad Again, year. I really didn't need that <laughs> visual, Laura. Ah, well, I do what all, I can. All that audio. No, well, but, you know, I th I, that's the image I have, you know? Isn't that the image you have? This kind of old dude puttering around in his bathrobe. Ah, David! You know, yeah. no, but... And With like a half-eaten cheeseburger in the pocket of his bathrobe. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. That is a nice wife, detail, Ed. His wife is not talking to him, right? I mean, we totally have passed over the fact that, you know, this whole thing with Michael Cohen and the first tape, you know, Trump is like willing to admit that he had an affair with Karen McDougal for a year after he just got married to his wife. 
So that can't be too good for that relationship. So no one's talking to him. And he's wandering around going, what is this building? Why are there no gold toilets? I don't know where I am. And, you know, periodically sitting down on the crapper, as Lauren suggests, and maybe launching a war or not. He doesn't remember. I mean, that's 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 what you're getting at, right, Lauren? That's yeah, the image. Yeah. That. That's the image, but also, like, there is the... Like, that's the best guidance that the the, the, uh, the Department of Defense and many others get from Trump. He doesn't like have formal NSC meetings, at least in the way that we used to. Like the, I've heard lots of current civil servants say, like, yeah, honestly, the president's tweets are kind of useful because at least you know where his head's at. But maybe you don't. Maybe his head was just having a stray thought. And you forgot about it, and we're you know spinning up huge mechanisms of the national security apparatus, uh, plus all of us losing sleep over it. And really, it was just a bad mood. So. Maybe it's maybe all, the fault is all of us. Oh, that's wow. <laughs> that's I, I didn't feel guilty about this at all until now, but now now, suddenly, then now suddenly, and I'm not being sensitive enough to this, this crazed guy walking around in, in, in the White House. Um, but you know, I, I think we, we are at a kind of a, a moment, Corey, where even for all of your optimism, we have to face the reality things are going to get rougher for Trump in the middle of the night. You know, he's going to be padding around and the walls are closing in and the Manafort trial, which was supposed to start on the 25th, just got postponed to the 31st. So it's it's going to start next week. And, um, and, and you know, Michael Cohen and there are these tapes and there's Mueller and there's, you know, multiple investigations. And the question is, what is pressure like that due to a man like this? Well, I think we see it. I I would love to see one of the deep state radio nerds uh, do a time plot of when revelations from the Mueller investigation uh, become, uh, become evident to the president and the president's most intemperate frothing at the mouth, lashing out on Twitter. The only thing I will say is I, I don't think the steering wheel is connected to the engine. I have not seen, well, I'd love to see you guys' uh, reactions to this because it seems to me that the president's bad policy choices have all been deliberate policy choices, not erratic heat of the moment choices. So the good news is uh, the president the enormous damage the president of the United States is doing to the United States is largely rhetorical and is in largely conveying his actual views, but the policies uh, are not in close sync with that. And that's a really good thing. So I, I think the president is bathrobe with a half eaten cheeseburger in his pocket and, you know, walking around the house tweeting stuff in the middle of the night is one of the least bad outcomes we can hope for at this point in time. So I'm, I'm sort of okay with that compared to, you know, nuclear war. (laughs) Always look on the bright side of life. You know, I think you need like some, some soundtracks, you know, little songs. Uh, uh, Monty Python. (laughs) Yeah. Lauren, do you guys have theme songs on Bombshell? I mean, do- we we ask all of our guests what their entrance music would be. So you know that would 
that would fit in quite well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Perfect for Corey. That Eric Idle whistling. It was on the bright side of life uh, while well, he's up there on the crucifix. <laughs> that, see, well, there's a Monty Python reference that 80% of our listeners will not get. We'll, and we'll, yet they can easily do the search and be enlightened by one of the really great things that make life worthwhile, i.e. Monty Python. <laughs> no, no, I, I agree. But Lauren, what's your entrance music? Um... My interest music harkens back to when I was in high school and would drive around at my parents' Ford Taurus and listen to the opening chords of Welcome to the Jungle over and over until I broke my dad's speakers. Uh, so uh, that, that, is, that is me in a nutshell right there. See, this is very helpful. I think you guys are really onto something. Yeah. Ed, would, Ed, would it be, you know, London Calling by The Clash? I think that's a good one. It wouldn't be Land of Hope and Glory. So let's go for the clash. <laughs> um, yeah, or Three Lions, maybe? <laughs> no, no, not, not anymore. <laughs> um, so, Ed and, and Lauren, as we sort of come to wrap this particular episode up, one of the things, you know, Corey made this uh, a point and said the steering wheel doesn't connect to the engine or something like that. Steering wheels don't actually connect to the engine. Uh, fortunately, uh, but, but, but I think the point, you know, one of the things that I've been seeing in the past week that I think is actually kind of a larger story and we saw it a little bit and we'll talk about this more in the next episode, but I saw it a little bit with, uh, Dan Coates. Um, but I think we've also seen it with the sort of disappearance of general Mattis recently and, some of the actions of the State Department, and so, is that we seem to be, for the first time in my memory, at a situation where there is the White House foreign policy, and then there's the foreign policy of the rest of the government. And in fact, the rest of the government spends most of its time trying to say, we're not actually going to do what he says. And that, and you know, I mean, occasionally, you know, you know, there'll be a trade war, but but most of the time, they're trying to you know, take a step away. And this is, it must be deeply confusing for the rest of the world, but it seems to me it's getting more pronounced. What do you think, Ed? Uh, uh, sorry, I got very momentarily distracted. Could you repeat the last bit of the question? But let me repeat it this way. What do you think, Lauren? <laughs> <laughs> so I think you're, you're absolutely right that there is a, there, there, there is a Trump foreign policy. And then there's probably separate from that a White House foreign policy and an NSC foreign policy. And then there's the agencies. I don't th I think that they occasionally all align, but rarely, as you suggest. And the, the worry that I have about that is, you know, bureaucratic resistance to the executive is pretty normal. This is part of bureaucratic politics that we study. But at the same time, if the automatic muscle memory of all of our national security apparatus in the future is going to be ignore the president, we'll do our own thing. That sets up a precedent that I don't love, um, particularly when you hear about uh, you know, the Department of Defense, Department of State, not only operating on their own to some degree, but actively trying to hide 
what they're doing so it doesn't get the president's attention and he doesn't kibosh it in some way, like because you, as we've seen him do before. So it may be good in the short term, I guess, to keep us all alive. But I think about that next president who will come in and find that he has an entire U.S. government that doesn't really care much about what he says, at least in the national security world, and having to kind of retrain that system to be responsive to a president's interests. And it might catch on. I mean, like this whole idea of a deep state, you know, before you know it, you'd get podcasts named after it. Mm. Good, good. Well, I, I, I mean, I, I, I have to say, there, there, there were a bunch of people out there when we started the podcast who were like, well, don't use the term deep state because that just plays into their hands. But I have, uh, there was a little irony in calling it deep state radio. But on the other hand, as you look at what's happening and as you look at this sort of bifurcation of our foreign policy and, you know, public servants actually doing what they're supposed to do, including pushing back on the president, I think it's quite possible that this story ends up with the people of the deep state being the heroes. Uh, so two things. Thing one, David, you didn't ask me my baseball walk-on music. Oh, yeah. Thing well, no, well, we, we were talking about your walk-on music. What do you <laughs> think it is? It would be L. King's song, America's Sweetheart. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Which, if you listen to the song, is about not being America's sweetheart. So, um, so I'm not... Um, it's a very funny, very witty, ribald song. Um, so... I, actually, yes, I guess mine would end up being Everyone Hates the Jews by Tom Lehrer. <laughs> <laughs> National Brotherhood Day. Oh, the I title see. of that song, David. Yeah, okay, go on. Sorry. <laughs> um, the serious point, though, is that I, I um, have come to the conclusion that it is right and proper for me to plead with everyone I know in the administration not to resign no matter how tempted they may be because of the president's disgraceful behavior. Um, because I, I am not, it would be so morally satisfying to see people walk out because the president's doing damage to the country. But I actually think it would be practically extraordinarily problematic for the country because that then leaves the president and his team the opportunity to replace them with people who are unlikely to take as seriously as the incumbents take the oath that everyone in the national security takes to uphold and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Well, that's, I mean, do you guys agree with that? Ed or Lauren? Yeah, yeah I do. I, there's two things. One, I'm very taken by this idea that Corey had um, of uh, outsourcing research to deep state nerds. I think that's that's a brilliant crowdsourcing. <laughs> um, so I just have to I have to I have to get that in. Um, the, you know, when we use the term deep state, we do cover a pretty broad universe. So there is the uh, people who are upholding the law and not uh, carrying out illegal orders, um, uh, and uh, the sort of the uh, the DOJ and the, the FBI side of things that we want to work. But then there are people who are required to execute policy from um, the elected um, head of the executive. And I do I do share um, 
sort of misgivings about them actively disobeying orders, not least because not all or at least warping, you know, what they've been asked to do, not least because it plays right into the cliche and the stereotype that Trump has about Washington and the persecution that he's suffering from the so-called deep state along with everybody else. It's, it's not a healthy division. Lauren, this is, we've just completed this first episode that you've come to visit us for. We didn't have champagne. I noticed you did a recent episode in Canada. We haven't been in Canada. Um, even our regular UK inhabitant, Corey is in Colorado, and I feel we've let you down on all of these things. But has it been okay? Has the experience been okay for you? Well, you may not have had champagne. You don't know what I'm sitting here with. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, but it, it has been a delight to chat with all of you. Um, it's uh, honestly, from the bombshell perspective, it's kind of strange to be talking with men about foreign policy, since typically we only talk with other women. So uh, th that in itself is novel. Um, but this is, it has been wonderful arguing and listening and learning from all of you. Well, I hope you know that one of the things about Deep State Radio is that we are absolutely committed. We, almost all of our episodes are either half women or mostly women. Oh, we know. And we try to, Sisterhood you know, keeps score on this stuff, David. Yeah, well, we just, we try <laughs> to do our bit. And a Bombshell, I don't listen to many podcasts, and honestly, I find most of them kind of tedious. Bombshell's great. And one of the reasons we wanted to have you here was to be able to say, Bombshell's great and to encourage Bombshell's all of, great. and to mm -hmm. encourage all the deep state radio nerds out there who aren't listening to Bombshell to listen to Bombshell. And so we're very glad you could join us. We look forward to having you on the next episode as well. Corey, it's been great having you here. As always, Ed, I don't know where you are. I think you're still talking to your contractors. Hope that works <laughs> out for you. Um <laughs> we look very, very true. Yeah, no, it's true. We look forward to having all of you join us again for the next uh, exciting uh, episode of Deep State Radio as we approach the apocalypse and, and see how that turns out for everybody. Bye-bye. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.